What's good, everyone? Welcome to a new episode of the Fun Book Diplomacy Podcast. I'm sitting right now in St. Mary's Square. It's a beautiful day today. It's a very... Okay, so there's people mowing the lawn here. I'm here in St. Mary's Square in Chinatown, San Francisco. For those of you who don't know the history of St. Mary's Square, I'm sure a lot of people don't know the history of St. Mary's Square, so I'll explain it a little bit here. Uh, the square where this... Uh, uh, it's right across the street from St. Mary's uh, Church... Uh, across from California Street, and uh, back in the day, before the earthquake and uh, subsequent fire in 1906, uh, was a uh, the area where brothels and gambling houses were uh, conveniently located across the street from a church, Catholic church. So, when all those rickety brothels came down in the disaster in 1906. Uh, the church bought up this piece of land and made it a nice green square where I'm sitting right now. So, a little bit of history lesson for you all. Uh, I just have like half an hour between right now and my my next shift at work. So, I'm knocking out these uh, the intro for the podcast. Um, so, as always, um, there is Amazon. So, I know a lot of you are shopping on Amazon. So, if you could go on my website, funboatdiplomacy.com, and Click on the right-hand side uh, in the box on the right-hand side of my Amazon portal. You can help support the podcast by using that and shopping, and Amazon gives me a cut of that purchase as a commission. It doesn't cost you anything extra. It helps me keep the lights on. Also, as I'm speaking so much about Chinatown and San Francisco in general, uh, please visit. Please, please, please visit uh, San Francisco. It's amazing. Um, and you can stay with me at the Pacific Trade Winds Hostel, um, located right on the border between the financial district and Chinatown. Um, uh, you can get three dollars off with this uh, discount code, Wayman's Friend Three. That's W E I M I N S F R I E N D Three. Get a three dollar discount. We'll come out to about thirty, thirty-two bucks a night. Pretty good for such an expensive city. I think we're the cheapest, but that I'm not sure of. Uh, the one thing I am sure of is you won't find me at any of the other hostels in San Francisco. Just Pacific Trade Winds. So, come visit. <laughs> I'm very excited to show people around this beautiful city. But this episode isn't about San... Oh, the beginning of the episode with Rudy uh, today is about San Francisco because he loves it as well. He's been all around the world. Um, originally from Indonesia, but he still thinks that San Francisco is the place is number one. So, uh, yeah, let's jump right into it with today's episode with uh, my good friend Rudy Haryona. Hello, everyone. Welcome to a new episode of Fun Boat Diplomacy Podcast. I'm here with Rudy Haryona. Welcome, Rudy. Thank you for welcoming me to this beautiful place of San Francisco. I love it. That's the reason I come here often, like five times a year mm. or four times from Washington, D.C. Yeah, do you want to uh, introduce yourself a little bit to the audience? Well, hello, everybody. My name is Rudy Haryono, and I come from Washington, D.C. That's the uh, home for the past almost 17 years now. But I originally come from Indonesia, and yeah, I've been around different places, 
but San Francisco, I think it's one of the most beautiful place on earth. And uh, I will choose this place in a heartbeat if somebody asks me, you know, one place I would like to live for the rest of my life. Yes, that's definitive. And why haven't you come here already to live? Well, the thing is, the cost of living. Yeah, of it's course. It's so high. Mm-hmm. And uh, probably that happened if I'm winning a lottery mm-hmm. or finding a wife that's actually coming from San Francisco or somewhere. To make the transition easier. Right. You know, I need like a good reason. Yeah. Like something that, you know, really significant that I'm willing to leave everything behind, you know, over there because I'm already well established in Washington, D.C. And... Only woman can do that for me. <laughs> yes. Yeah, because some people are used to, they come here and they they hit the ground running. They, they have nothing, they have no job set up, no house set up here in San Francisco. And they come into this arena. I keep calling San Francisco an arena. And they come here and try to go to battle and it doesn't work because, or they can try to make it work, but it's very difficult because you have to find a house that's really expensive. And then jobs are very competitive out here, especially the people who come to, to fight in this arena. So, yeah, uh, yeah that's, that's true because uh, San Francisco is a dreamer city. You mm-hmm. know, people, you know, come to San Francisco to pursue their dreams. And um, I don't know, some something with the city that actually make people, you know, to be more creative. Mm-hmm. And um, when, especially if you go to Dolores Park, you to go, go to Golden Gate Park, and you see all this nature around you and it's like, Oh my God, this is so beautiful. You know, I want to live here, but their dreams overwhelm their senses. You know, after they started to realize where I'm going to live and how I'm going to work, and uh, there are so many people with smart brains here, and it's so competitive. You don't believe it. I think this place is even tougher than living in New York, in my opinions. Yeah, I think so too. I mean, New York. Is bigger, but New York can grow. It's it's there's a way it it can grow and uh, just become bigger. But I always say um, with San Francisco, it's it's on three sides. It's water, so it can only grow south and try to go north. It doesn't really do much north. It's gone to the East Bay and Oakland, but uh, it it's very restrictive, and so space wise, absolutely pushes it all into one tiny tiny piece of land. Absolutely, and everybody want to move here. But on the other hand, you know, I feel grateful that we uh, we still keep the Chinatown as it is, and we still have a lot of Chinese people mm-hmm. because North Beach as well, like this. Because this uh, piece of premium land in Chinatown, right in the middle of everything, it what keep San Francisco as it is. Uh, the bone of the city is still here, and this Chinatown. It defend the city, you know, from being taken over by the Turkeys. Mm-hmm. You know, if imagine if we don't have Chinatown, everybody will start buying piece of land around Broadway and Grand and everything, mm-hmm. and then nobody will be able to live here anymore. And this Chinatown, you know, they serving like cheap food and you know, and it make people who who's not having like a large income. To be able to live in the city and enjoying what San Francisco as it is, you know. And there's so many natural places where you can go for free. Although that one thing that I uh, kind of, you know, 
disagree with how much they charge for the uh, museums. Oh, uh, yeah. But because those are their free days. So those absolutely. Are nice. Those are nice. Yeah. But to me, you know, museums... Coming like, from D.C., it's free. Right, coming from D.C., where everything's are free, and then I went to California Science Museums. It's 35 bucks. 35 bucks. And I was like, you know, how you justify to charge people for no, uh, for knowledge? Mm-hmm. You know, how, how the uh, family will be able to actually go and learn something if you charge $35 per person. You know, I know I got it. It's a private, but that's a lot of money. Yeah, but I, 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 um, I understood when I visited, I see all these fucking fish, and yes. that takes a lot of, uh, a lot of money to, to maintain. Absolutely. But uh, I think for these museums, it would be really great if the city paid for it. Yeah, I mean, like a subsidizer, mm-hmm. you know, and uh, you charge only $15 would be nice, mm-hmm. you know, because in Washington, D.C., there are numerous of museums that are world-class, too, like museums, um, spy museums, right. crime and punishments, mm-hmm. and they charge you only, what, $26, and it goes for two days consecutive, you mm-hmm. know. We can do it here, because especially with the techies, you know, mm-hmm. everything, I, I think they, they will have no problem to actually pitch in. Mm-hmm. Um, you want to talk a little bit about your work uh, in DC? Hmm? I'm working at the Mayflower Hotel, a um, historic building on Connecticut Avenue. Um, we are a historic hotel, very um, political hotel because we are only seven minutes walk from the White House, mm-hmm. and we are hosting every U.S. presidential inauguration balls mm-hmm. since 1925. And Which president uh, was that? Was that the first one Hoover? was Calvin Coolidge. Coolidge, nineteen twenty-five. Yes. Uh, until President um, Clinton, when they started to uh, build the uh, convention center, and they started to reduce the number of the balls from uh, around twenty-five, twenty-six down to four. Yes. So right now they just do it huge big you know in a big area mm-hmm. but they still come into our hotel you know for party yeah. and everything and fundraising and everything and we have all those pictures with those people the presents and everything and I met several of them as a matter of fact you know uh, during inaugurations I spent time with Obama's family mm-hmm. watching TV together for five days I spent time with Joe Biden because Joe Biden staying on the uh, entire eighth floor and Obama's family on the entire ninth floor and yeah I get to know them uh, some of Joe Biden's um, personal aides and the people who work them for them you know they're even on my Facebook uh, mm-hmm. friends and actually they, they were like okay Rudy if you want to come to the White House East Wing West Wing let us know you come anytime so have you taken their offer before yes but you know uh, White House is a White House you know I live in you know, in DC, and I kind of take it for granted. Yeah, yeah, I did the same. Right. Yeah. But you know, it's it's nice. You know, it's it's a, like a privilege for me. So you've spoken to these. How long would you normally, on average, speak to these uh, politicians and these very important people in the world? We actually on the, on a first name base. Oh, yeah? Me and these people, I'm not like calling them. Uh, formally, like Mister President, Mister Vice President. We we are on the first name base. Oh, yeah? Yes, because I met several of them and we get to know each other. I know the head of the Secret Service mm-hmm. as well, and um, I met 
Prime Minister of Israel, Benjamin Netanyahu, yeah, like three times already, and mm-hmm. I speak Hebrews with him, so he was happy, mm-hmm. and I know his wife, I know some of the cabinet members, because they have a favorite tables and spots on the eighth floor, right in the corner, where they like to sit down and talk for three hours, four mm-hmm. hours, yes. And um, what is it like to talk to these these people it is very nice but uh, usually I don't talk about politics with them right just pe- and I keep as, it as people yeah. as people you know how is everything and um, I relate a lot about foods and uh, I like cultures as well and I speak about so many things with them you know about the cities in uh, Israel like Netanya mm-hmm. Haiva and everything was the difference but not with the uh, prime minister itself because you know I don't want to ask him about s- such questions you know mm-hmm. but with the people that work for him you know uh, yeah very close but with him with him you know I probably just okay um, can I make you some coffee and how can I make you comfortable mm-hmm. you know and everything and it's very nice I love it but he doesn't know I speak Arabic as well oh yeah yes yeah, where did you learn all these languages just on your own I love languages um I went to school for it, and some of them I took courses, and some of them self-taught, mm-hmm. and some of them from the streets, yes. And um, in Washington, D.C. is the uh, home of the largest Ethiopian community as well. Right. So that's what gave me the opportunity, actually, to learn four dialects of Ethiopian language. Wow. Yes. That's... that's Entirely 100% from streets and from myself thought. But German, I went for um, German school. Also, I was born in Germany. Where? Uh, in, Munich, in Munich. Until I was eight, and then we moved to Indonesia. Mm-hmm. Yes. But I also went get a course, you know. And um, also, I speak Swedish. And I speak Indonesian. And my mother is actually from Hong Kong so we're part of Cantonese mm-hmm. my father is the third generation of Japanese and Chinese so I speak different languages what's your methodology to picking up a new language I have a very strong memory okay. uh, photographic memory so I don't forget things that's amazing I, yeah. I really wish I had it yeah. when I read the book I remember everything from the first page to the last page word by word and that's make it easier for me to remember and I have a span of uh, about eight years of remembering people's face and names. I work in the hotel. Okay. I meet thousands of people every day. I mean, not every day, but accumulation of times, thousands of people. And sometimes, you know, we got a guest coming to the hotel, check in, you know. And I saw them like seven, eight years ago. And I still remember their face first name and last name and then the dress that they were seven eight years ago and they were so shocked they were so surprised i was like how can you do that i was like i don't know but the minute you walk inside the door i know who 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 are you you know your face where were you and what dress that you're wearing and who you came here with everything it just opened up you know my my eyes you know I don't know. I'm amazed my, myself by it. Yeah, but this is something you've always had? Always had. Wow. Yeah. Do you think there's a way to train this? Or is it just you have to have it? 
Well, it's both ways. The first and the first is you have to have attentions for details mm-hmm. that you uh, need to start to pay attention for uh, small things. You never despise a meager beginning. Because if you remember small things, you will remember big things. And you have to put the perspective on these people. You know, you have to put a new significance to these people. Say, for example, you know, to other people, you are just a wayman. You're just a nice friend. But when I first I see you, I try to draw uh, relations with you. You know, I was like, okay, wayman is an Asian guy just like me. We both Chinese. And we have common friends, Debbie and yeah. Mira and everything. Mm-hmm. So I try to relate to you. And then after that, you know, I dig deeper and say, okay, he speaks German. He's been to Germany. And he, we, we talk about the same musics and things like that. Mm-hmm. And you, you're being planted in my brain and my heart, you know, little by little. And then when you stick to my memory, you will never go away. You always stay. Yes. That's incredible. Yeah. That's that's the way the method is. And uh, if uh, if you want to learn and memorizing about knowledge or or studying, you know, first you have to put in perspective too that what you bought to do is a very important for you and uh, give it all. Yes. That's why, you know, it's it's a very effective but I think you have that talent too. To remember things? To remember things. My memory is dog shit. It's so bad. You never know until you dig deeper. You have to put more significance and importance to the things that you think it's worth to remember. Mm-hmm. Well, I'd say that, but uh, for example, when my memory can't be that bad because I studied history. So um, if my memory was really that bad, I would have not passed any of my classes. But if you're learning history, you have to know dates. You have to know the significance of things. And I did learn it through... That's one thing I, I, I underestimate that I learned in university. I always say I didn't learn anything. I learned how to read. I learned how to write. Basically, that's it. But uh, I guess memory was something... Because uh, what I would do for history is you know, paint a picture, put it into a, um, into a context, uh, which I think a lot of people have pro- uh, problems with. They don't like history because they don't have the context. And if you can put it into a, you really need to make it significant. With the history, I have a, I have a method of remembering history. I view history as a novel, as a story that has already happened. And it's not written by you, but it's written by nature or written by God or something. You know, it things happen for reasons. And then when you read the history, you just have to be entertained by it, you know. It's like, okay, okay, just like, it's a story. And then you started to draw conclusions, like, okay, how about if the the, uh, the course of his story change, you know, instead of going straight, they're actually going to left or going to right, what's going to happen, you know. It's very interesting because you, you will be able to draw different scenarios, you know, but the course of his story that has already happened, it's always stayed the same. And you just need to uh, remember and everything. And uh, one of the uh, books that actually um, gave me this perspective is a book by Bevin Alexander called How Hitler Could Have Won the War. So I learned a lot from that. 
you know, um, the scenarios and everything, what would happen if he actually won the war, and what would happen if he actually went straight to Moscow instead of uh, uh, flanking Stalingrad, Stalingrad and, and Leningrad. Leningrad and waiting for the army uh, group uh, north and group south to go and then uh, um, serving his um, desire to humiliate the Russian people right. instead of just taking it. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I learned a lot from that book. Yeah. And it's a good book. That's a, it, I really, a lot of people will say that uh, the mm, general knowledge of the war in the East is lacking. But it's really incredible, that story, the story of, I mean, you all, in America, we learn about D-Day uh, and uh, taking over the, the western half of, of Germany. And But that's such a small, small thing compared to the East. And um, I recently saw this um, thing, I was making bar graphs in each of these. Each, uh, it was a video. They said, okay, this is American casualties. Each of these is 1,000 soldiers, right. 1,000 people. So there's like, it builds a little tiny little bar. Okay, and here's the, 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 the USSR. And it, I think it was a, maybe up to a minute of just, or more, of just building. Kept going and going. And this just shows you how big it is. Yeah. I mean, Hitler wasn't really thinking that much about the West. It was mostly... Sideshow kind of, and then you get into other things like so. There is the the USSR, but then why did he go to North Africa? And then there's a whole story about the Middle East that nobody talks about really. Uh, it's not in the narrative as much. Well, he Hitler viewed the uh, uh, communists as the main enemy. Mm -hmm. You know, he doesn't view the West as a. Like a real. He enemy. said. He said to Britain. He said, "We're right. the same. We're, we're right because, from because the same roots. he thinks that there are Nordic people, and you know it doesn't have to be eliminated, and it comes later. But um, it's a sad show because he want to uh, bring the pride back to uh, the German people after the Treaty of Versailles, mm -hmm. and. Uh, about the casualties with the uh, Eastern Front, you know, they he commit three millions young men actually to fight in the war, and it was his mistakes that actually instead of um, going and trying to uh, sympathize with the uh, Russian peoples from their suffering during the Bolshevism, you know, when they become uh, um, victims of the Russian Soviet Union, he actually doesn't care about these people and just make it even worse for them. Mm -hmm. So they were facing uh, certain options that is not actually is not good and no win solutions. But they will choose the uh, lesser evil of the two because at least you know it's their own people instead of siding with the uh, Nazis. What I think is uh, not so helpful in thinking about what could have happened, how mm -hmm. Hitler could have won. Uh, you have to really understand that this is the only way. This is in his ideology. If if he is going to eliminate communism and Bolshevism and the Jews, he has to invade the Soviet Union. So everyone says, if he didn't invade the Soviet Union, then they they could have they could have won. But not really, because he wouldn't consider that victory. Victory has to include for 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 him 
the elimination of the Soviet Union. If he didn't so he didn't in uh, invade Soviet Union, Soviet Union would invade Germany mm-hmm. because Soviet Union already got fallen that time, yeah. and they were in the process of building. They weren't ready. That's why you know uh, the. Uh, that's why Hitler made uh, the uh, Barbarossa on the name the uh, Operation Barbarossa mm-hmm. 1941 to, to attack by surprise. Mm-hmm. The uh, the only thing that you know Hitler did wrong was trying to embarrass the Russian people by taking Stalingrad and Leningrad. You know because it's uh, it's going to be also a symbolic win for him. You know to be able to Take change the, the names. Name. Yeah. Stalin and Lenin. and Lenin. Yes, yes. But if he will just go straight to Moscow, he will have won the war. Mm-hmm. You know, and because you know Western part is very easy for him. You know, uh, the way he uh, broke the uh, Maginot Line, mm-hmm. and then took the Ardennes from the uh, from the forest um, in Paris and go straight to Paris from Belgium. Too easy, easy. for him. Easy. The, the French were uh, prepared for the last war. So, right. Yeah. But right. But also, uh, we're talking about the uh, European history. Asian history is also very interesting. I mean, like I in the sixties, you know, um, in uh, Southeast Asia, and then we got like Indonesian uprising with the uh, revolutions uh, against the uh, Communist Party of Indonesia, which is you know number as the uh, third largest Communist Party in the world. And uh, with the army, um, you want to give uh, like from let's say from from the end of the Second World War, can you give this? Because uh, I know very little about it. Yeah. Can you give me sort of a, uh, a Cliff Notes version of what? From Second World War. Yeah. Okay. Is that significant? Okay, we we I going it, yeah. we going um, specifically for Indonesia right now mm-hmm. first because Indonesia and is you're, you're reading that book as well I right that was really interesting it's it's a very, very what's, the, what's book. the book that uh, uh, the fall know. of Sukarno mm-hmm. is the uh, founder of Indonesia mm-hmm. the uh, proclamators and uh, it tells a story about Indonesia and the uh, 60s during the revolution war but I would like to uh, bring you back all the way in the 40s and um when uh, Japan lost the war in the Second World War, you know, first let me talk about Indonesia in general. Indonesia is a it's a large country in Southeast Asia, with two hundred fifty million populations, and it was a Dutch colony for two hundred fifty years, and uh, under the uh, Dutch colonial colonialism, it used to be called uh, VOC, um, Indische Company. So it's a Dutch East Indies, mm-hmm. where all the spices and everything are taken from the Moluccas Island, Spice Island, and then brought to Europe. Mm-hmm. That's what um, the Netherlands did to be able to actually build the countries from mm-hmm. nothing. Because Netherlands is just like a poor country. They have nothing. They have a it's a below, below sea level. Yeah. That's... That's how they built the country from Indonesia, from Spice Island. So 350 years, you know, Indonesia was uh, in the captive of the uh, uh, inlanders uh, mentality. Like you are lower, you know, and you look up to your master and everything. And during the uh, World War, 
uh, Japan invaded Indonesia, and they were able to drove the uh, the Dutch out. So Japan um, ruled Indonesia for three for three and a half years, and then the Allied with Japan, and then Japan left. And it was the time where Indonesia actually able to seize the uh, opportunity to declare their independence on August 17, 1945. From that moment, you know, all the infrastructures that was already established by the Dutch and everything were suffering from mismanagement and uh, neglects and everything. Because these Indonesian people are just like, doesn't know, you know, like, like you are being left with the, uh, a box of treasure chest full of gold. But you don't have the key. You know, and all these natural resources like gold, rubbers and everything and the natural resources, it's deep within the underground. And they don't have no means and nor the brains to actually to tap this from 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 the earth. So they were like depending, you know, from uh, from the former slave masters, you know, they're not entirely independent. And um, if you imagine, um, during the uh, Dutch colonialism, Indonesia was a major exporter of rice in the world. From uh, 500,000 tons every year. And after the independence, they become importer mm -hmm. of rice. From who? From, uh, from Thailand. Yeah, okay. From the neighboring countries, mm -hmm. because they don't know how to manage their wow. their natural resources. You know how pathetic is that. But uh, little by little, you know, time, we got a leader, somebody who were able to uh, to uh, bring people from uh, obscurity and from the misery that you know. Oh, we have no hope. You know, we have a, such a sprawling country, but. We don't know what to do with it. There is a guy named Sukarno. You know, he was able to say to the people, we have to unite. You know, everybody have different language, but we have to unite as Indonesians. And he was actually able to take the minds of the people from, um, oh, we got nothing to it, to be like, okay, Indonesia is a very rich country. And we have to be strong and everything. And he, he was like Hitler, you know, basically. Very nationalist. Right wing. Right wing. First, he was a right wing first. Mm -hmm. And then he uh, built the people out, you know, uh, that, oh, Malaysia and, and Brunei Darussalam were supposed to be belong to Indonesia and everything. And people started to forget about, you know, that they don't have food and everything. Instead of... Uh, Instead of uh, learning how to uh, fishing or, or farming, actually, they learned how to how to shoot and go to war. So it was able to take from from the mind of the people for a little bit until the uh, sixty five, when um, the uh, invasion plan, the confrontation um, with the militia started to take form in uh, invasions. The jungle warfare and everything and uh, he always thought that Indonesia is a bargaining chip power with the uh, allied force because you know that time Cambodia and Vietnam everything is already fighting against the communists 
and he thought that Indonesia is a such a strategic locations with a large populations he were able to say to uh, United States or the Allied you know I want this and you have to to give me what as, I want as an ally yes, yes as an ally you know he thought that he can uh, give them a ransom or something like that but uh, he was wrong because when Indonesia would get ready to uh, invade Malaysia the British said if you attack Malaysia we're going to attack you because it's our you know colony was the, was this dispute a land dispute between Indonesia and Malaysia it's a uh, it's not a land dispute actually what Indonesia always think that Malaysia is belong to Indonesia okay because it's a one island okay, okay. yes but Malaysia was a British colony right and British say if you attack Malaysia we're going to attack you mm -hmm. and that Sukarno started to get really pissed meanwhile are they both Malaysia and Indonesia the same people against both against communism at the time both against communism, yes. It's a, it's a completely the same people. Gotcha. Okay. Yeah. And uh, Sukarno was pissed that the British say that. And he started to uh, move toward left, 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 left uh, to China. Because he wasn't really uh, into Soviet Union's communism as well. Because if you see the... Uh, Soviet Union communism, it's completely different with Chinese communism. Yeah, they were never really friends. They were friends never. in name because they were communists, but they, they weren't agreeing on a lot of things. In Jakarta, in the, uh, in the year 1964-1965, it was so funny. There were three different powers that keep looking out of each other. Like the Americans watching for the Soviet Union, and the Soviet Union watching for the Chinese. You know, because they know that the Chinese has the uh, powers to, mm. to be able to blend with the, uh, with Indonesia, and the Chinese were actually was the one who gave the aid to Indonesia mm. the most. Yeah, so that's the history why Indonesia were moving toward the the, uh, the China's communism mm -hmm. until nineteen sixty five um, in September thirtieth when they decided to kidnap all the uh, army generals from their house while they were sleeping tortured them yes, tortured them and then buried them in the unused wells and that's when the start of the purge of the army and they just wiped out all the communist sympathizers or everything and the victims were like about 3 million and so let's yeah. let's unpack that so it's uh, the leader of Indonesia purging communists from the military from yeah from but the but he was he was also moving left the uh leader of indonesia was very right he it, was very right yeah he was they were given a list by the uh by the uh, u.s ambassadors right to uh so this was acquiescing indonesia. to to western uh, right. um, western values western the domino effect sort right. of anti-domino effect mentality right well um, before that, before this current U.S. ambassadors came to Jakarta, Marshall Greens, with the uh, missions to uh, put a strong stance against Indonesia and Sukarno's bravadoism, the ambassador's name was uh, Ambassador John, and he was like very nice guy. He tried to uh, solve everything to dialogues and peace and everything, but. 
America really grew impatience because America was afraid that Indonesia was falling into communist, into a deeper, deeper communist grips, and they also paying attention on the uh, the Communist Party of Indonesia that growing in numbers and everything and become the third largest. So that's why they sent in a new ambassadors, ambassador Marshall Grants. And the minute he arrived at the airport in Jakarta, there were so many like posters say it's go home Yanks, go home Yanks. Mm-hmm. We don't need you. You know, goodbye. Welcome but goodbye. You know, and then they burn effigies and everything. He already met with hostility. But he came to Jakarta with a list of the uh, communist party members, the leaders and everything. And he started to I think part of it, you know, he started to concord the uh, arrange of how you know the uh, revolutions will be will be done from within the ranks of army mm-hmm. and that's what happened and so what was the what came after these purges what was the results of this the results of this first is uh, people were killed without any reason because that time if, if you, your if neighbor you just say that you're yeah. communist then, then if your neighbor like the french revolution you know? doesn't like you they can just say it. That guy is a communist. communist yeah. He'll be dead. Second, um, the rights of the Chinese Indonesian who were born there and everything were stripped away from you. Your neighbor, uh, you're not able to speak Chinese anymore in public. And then you can celebrate Chinese New Year's in public. Chinese schools were closed. And then you have to change your names from Chinese name or oriental names into Indonesian names and then uh, they uh, also give you a choice I forgot the name I think it's PP66 or something like that that it gives you ultimatums you have to renounce that you are Chinese or you have to go back to mainland China and uh, also they put your religions and your ethnicity on your ID card, national mm. ID card, whether you are indigenous Indonesian or you are Chinese. Mm. Indonesian slash Chinese. Yeah. Easier for you to become a target, you know, because, yeah. you know, when you... So these yeah. things could happen, but if they, as, 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 as long as they say, oh, you're a communist, they could, they could kill you. Yeah. yeah. Yes. It is a very, Ooh. very complex... And uh, yeah, I recommend this book called The Fall of Sukarno. You, uh, I mean, like, you will learn all oh, something from the very beginnings, and also the the movie called The Year of Living Dangerously by Mel Gibson, Linda Hunt, and uh, Sigourney Weaver. Mm-hmm. It's a very very nice. And uh, yeah, Indonesia it's moving to the right directions right now. Actually, what's the condition now? It's better, because uh, up up until when was it super uh, crazy like like it was in the sixties? The super crazy was in nineteen ninety eight during the uh, crisis monetary crisis in Asia. It was started in nineteen ninety early nineteen ninety seven. Started with Thailand when the uh, the local currency. Um, crash 
and then it uh, took in domino effects from different countries but Indonesia was very prosperous at that time but it was very fragile and uh, if you uh, see Indonesia in the early 90s they were like called the tiger of Asia because they were very fast in building infrastructures and everything and were they, moving they, fast. Were they one of the four uh, yes. Asian tigers? Right. So and that's then, what, Taiwan, Indonesia, South Korea, South Korea, and Japan. Japan. Yes. And uh, one US dollar that time was only 2,000 Indonesian rupiah. Overnight, in 99, in May 14, from 2,000 rupiahs, they went up straight to 17,000 rupiahs. Can you imagine that? You know, people were suddenly went bankrupt, they killed themselves and everything. And it plunged the country into a chaos. And that's when the systematic rapes happening toward the Chinese people. You know, um, and within three days span, 14 May, May 14 until May 16th, 500 Chinese women were um, raped, being stripped naked, and forced to dance naked on the street and killed. For what reason? To uh, take away the uh, people's mind of the uh, taking the presidents down. Okay, this is a long story, but I'm going to tell you the story from the very beginning about the uh, the second Indonesian's riots. Mm -hmm. Suharto was the army generals who actually purged the communists. He was the one who uh, took the power from the presidents. He was the one who cleaned up the communists. But he took power as a president, second president of Indonesia, and he reigned for 32 years. From 2,000 Indonesian rupiahs to one US dollar, changed overnight during the monetary crisis to 17,000, and people were panicked. And then the students started to uh, went to the streets and protesting against his leaderships and demanded that he is to be stepped down. But one of his son-in-law was a commander of the Special Forces Reserve of the Army of Indonesia. He's a three-star general, lieutenant general, who he uh, uh, is going to put as the uh, chief of the armed forces. And um, he was arranging these military things with the uh, commanders of different army forces and sending these soldiers to dress in civilian clothes and rape all the Chinese women and burn the Chinese businesses and everything in order to uh, distract the people from revolutions. Mm -hmm. okay. So that's what happened. And it was like a chaos within a chaos on top of each other. This was in the 90s? In 90, 98, May 98, in three days. It's not in just in Jakarta, but sporadically happened in where largest Chinese communities in Sumatra in different parts of Indonesia. But after that, you know, Suharto stepped down because he was still being forced by the people, you know, like Marcos in the uh, 85, 86. Yeah. So he stepped down and the, uh, his vice presidents took over as presidents for uh, two years. And then a uh, few other presidents 
until little by little Indonesia to start to realize okay we have to put the uh, new kind of democracy uh, democracy into a place so that every time we replace the presence there will be no more chaos mm-hmm. you know until right now we have a presence a result of a direct elections president Joko Widodo started as a mayor of a small town in central Java Solo and he became the best mayor in the world you know with 90% of vote for second terms from a meager beginning he was nobody and he became the governor of the capital city of Jakarta with his running mate Christian and the Chinese and then uh, for two years he became a governor he ran for elections against this guy the former commander of the special force and he won and this guy who was the former commander of the special force were so angry he formed a coalition of a large uh, political machineries against this guy so Indonesia was like split into two factions the uh, the presence and the people because he was result of the direct elections and the political machines uh, led by the uh, these former special army commanders. So this guy is a bad guy, man. Mm-hmm. Was there any danger during the election because he was the well, commander? Uh, well, the uh, dangers in terms of physical dangers were not really happening. But mostly are the, uh, the black campaigns mm-hmm. and the uh, slanders and everything directed toward the uh, presence. You know, but right now the presence able to consolidate his power you know people started to see results that okay you know uh, the corruptions you know it's really being eradicated you know little by little the the funds that are supposed to be used to build the countries and everything he actually using you know and this president got the balls you know um, if you know the story about the uh, um, Bali 9 Chappelle Scorby that you know he punished people uh, who are captured uh, bringing drugs to Indonesia like last year mm-hmm. there was an uproar from Brazil Nigeria Australia about the Indonesian execute the uh, the druggers mm-hmm. drug dealers right. in Indonesia it's because of this presence because the former presence because this guy before this guy was he's a populist you know, he was afraid about his image and everything. Although that the rules already clearly state that, you know, if you bring drugs to Indonesia and you've been captured, you're punishable by death. But the former president was also army soldiers, army generals. He was afraid to offend Australians and everything. He just cared about the image. About the image. But the new presence, right now the current presence, became president. He said, we're not going to wait for long. We're just going to execute them and give people lessons that you can bring the drugs to Indonesia. That's why it's also the uproar, the Australian Prime Minister was like, why? Why you have to wait for 10 years to execute this guy? You know, it's not our president's fault. It's the former president's fault because he didn't have a boss to execute. You know, but now it's respected, you know, and also about the border, the water border that... Uh, before, you know, there are a lot of uh, fishing boats that came to Indonesia and stealing the fish and yeah. everything. 
right now, if they get caught by the uh, Navy, mm-hmm. their boat will be destroyed mm-hmm. right now. Who's coming to take, uh, who's coming to illegally fish in Indonesian waters? The Indonesian people. They're not supposed to? They're supposed to. It's belong to Indonesian uh-huh. people. But this thief, the fish thieves, they came from Malaysia, they well, came maybe, from Thailand, they came from Vietnam. Mm-hmm. You know, the former president was afraid to execute and destroy the boats. But now the president has, you know, guarantee that if you are not Indonesian boats, you come to Indonesian water and stealing our fish and everything. You will be taken. The people will be taken from the boat and your boat will be destroyed on the spot. Mm-hmm. And what do you think about the drug policy? The drug policy is really good. Execution is really good. The... Uh, the rule is already in place. So it make you think, you know. I know it's not inhumane to some people to execute people. You know, you have no rights to take people life. But if you think about it, these people who bring drugs to uh, certain countries, they actually take the lives of the people of their country. You know, it's the same. You know, like, um, say for example, Bali 9, the 9 people syndicate of Australian drug dealers, come to Indonesia they they're only nine but they destroy like how many two hundred thousand kids life you know you might not kill them today but you kill them ten years from now when these kids are living on the streets and they're stealing money and they commit crimes and they're being shot by police and everything you able to see it on the long terms so I agree, you know, and Indonesia is not the only country to actually secure it. Right. Singapore as well, and Malaysia as well. I think Taiwan used to. Yes. I think it should be. Capital punishment, it should be. Because, you know, you can. I, I give you an example. It's like a driving, a driving Ferrari without a brake. Okay, people are not afraid. You know, they just do it for a thrill. You know, to test the resolve of you. But if you put a brake... Okay, it's dangerous. We don't want to do it. You know, we got to stop you. People are not going to do it, you know, because they need to see the results. That's basically it. But uh, it's very interesting, man. I'm very, very interested to see what their countries around. Are they going to follow with what Indonesia is doing when they see the, uh, the statistic that the uh, drugs is way down? Or they just trying to be politically correct. Is, is uh, legalization ever a, a topic of discussion in Indonesia of drugs? No, yeah. it's not on discussions, never. Okay, only, only whether or not to execute. Yeah. And you think that uh, it should remain this way, remain uh, totally illegal and to execute? Totally illegal. It should be illegal. Mm-hmm. Um, listen, I used to be a drug user too. Mm-hmm. Okay, I took ecstasy. And Indonesia is the largest Muslim country in the world. Right. You know, and I got to tell you honestly, without being politically correct, Muslim people are the largest hypocrites people. <laughs> they are the most hypocrites people in the world. You know, because, you know, they don't do it in front of you, but they do it behind you. And um, In their houses, everything's closed. Right. They like to talk, mm-hmm. but they love to do it. And I live in Indonesia for 18 years. I know exactly, you know. Ecstasy is so easy to find in Indonesia. And, and crack. They're so easy. Like, in, in the Western culture, when you go out with a bunch of friends, 
your social norm is to go to the bar and having drink. It's common thing. But in Indonesia, your social norm to hang out with a friend is to go to a club and take ecstasy. They don't drink alcohol, but they take drugs. Because mm-hmm. it's not doesn't say it's it's not allowed or yes, yeah. but they take drugs. So it's a very hypocrite country. But still, you know, it doesn't matter that you cannot implement the laws for the people from outside to reduce the uh, the level of drug using. You know, and I think the the crackdown is supposed to be um, within the uh, military as well and the police because some of the military and the police actually are the one who provide these drugs to the people. So you you see in in America they're starting to legalize, or at least marijuana. Like what do you, what do you think about that then? Legalizing marijuana, I agree. Okay. But only marijuana. Only marijuana. Yes. Not other drugs. Not other drugs. They fuck you up. No. Marijuana is it's fine, you know, it's fun things and it's harmless and everything. Do you see but it should be regulated. That's it's it's not the uh, synthetic marijuana because you don't know what what the ingredients. Are. Do you see a possible benefit though of, let's say, in theory, legalizing all drugs and making it a health issue instead of a crime issue? Well, because marijuana is not a crime. It is in the in federal, uh, on the federal level. Federal government says if if you possess marijuana, you uh, you are breaking the law. For now, but someday it will change. But what about uh, heroin? What if it's your own choice to do a drug? And no. then and if so, you want to take that choice from the people. Absolutely, absolutely, because you know it's not good for you. Like I said, you know. But you what about th- alcohol? Not good for you either. Well, alcohol is good for moderations, but I, uh, I believe that alcohol. Yeah, a lot, of people, not, a lot not, of people don't do it in moderation. A lot of people do it in excess. Well, to me, in um, in case of alcohol, is you are you're not supposed to have it available everywhere in every street corner. And only a very um, in um, establishment, certain establishment that you know able to serve alcohol, and it should be heavily regulated. And if you see uh, drunkens on the street, it should be uh, stopped by police. And and us, you know, um, or maybe you know, find them. But to uh, ban alcohol, prohibit alcohol, it's it's wrong. But uh, in terms top. of okay, yeah, but in terms of cocaine and heroin, it's not wrong to ban them because it completely destroyed you. We're not talking about like a, we, you know, being politically correct or not, you know, taking the rights from the people. But also, you don't want to be a parent. Government is a parent, and the citizens are its children. You don't want to give your children Ferrari without brick. You know, and let them drive as fast as they can until they kill themselves by hitting a tree or hitting a wall. You have to set up the brake. You know, certain limits you have to hit it. It's the same. And uh, the things about oh, you're taking rights from the people and everything. It's all man-made rules. If you're 
if your idea can implement things like that, you know, everything should be legalized because you know it's the right of the people. Your mind should be able to actually make the other rules too. That okay, this is not good, and you know, we don't want to do that because it's for your own goodness. Mm-hmm. So if I'm gonna have wrap this up. Uh, is is Indonesia now a uh, place where a lot of tourists go? Is it yes. a nice place to go for tourism? Uh, I recommend to go to Indonesia. Yeah. What are your recommendations? My recommendation will be to visit Bali. Mm-hmm. Uh, my sister, I was uh, my sister went there when she was studying in Japan, and she got malaria. <laughs> she got malaria and had to be in a hospital for a month or so. Oh boy, I'm so sorry. Yeah. <laughs> Um, Not to discourage people in the audience who want absolutely. to go. I would love to go. Absolutely. But uh, Bali is a, it's a very beautiful island. And it's very cheap. You know, I tell you, first of all, Bali is uh, largely Hindu, not Muslims. How did that happen? Because Indonesia was Buddhist and Hindus until the spread of Islam. They came and then they started to change and everything. And these Balinese people, they are Hindu, they isolate themselves because they are in different islands. Mm-hmm. And then some of the Balinese people who live in Java, they ran to Bromo, to Bromo Mountains, and they established a village called Tengger Village, and they are still Hindu. And that's what uh, protect them from the influence of the Islam and everything. So Bali, largely Hindu, so it's different with the rest of Indonesia and it's very cheap um, one US dollar counts for about 12,000 Indonesian rupees which is equivalent of uh, 7 dollar US dollar in terms of value mm-hmm. so yeah. for 1 dollar you have one like US. 7 dollars of buying power right wow. right so it's a very cheap and uh, a lot of things to see uh, natural places you know we have different kind of beach if you want to surf you know you go here if you want to snorkeling you go here parasailing and everything and um, I want you to be careful with the uh, money exchanging shops on, on the street store because they will trick you um, they count the money in front of you on the table, but once after they compile it together, they give it to you, they drop two or three on the mm-hmm. floor. And you usually don't count it because he already counted in front of you and you just put in the wallet and you don't even realize that you lose few uh, dollars on the floor, two or three uh, bills on the floor because usually you put it with the... Uh, all the monies that you have in the in the wallets mm-hmm. so be careful with those people and be careful with the uh, is it better, the guys is it better to just exchange at the airport or something to the bank to the banks okay. yeah it's it's always better to go to official banks never to the uh, money exchange mm-hmm. on the streets especially on Kuta and Legian streets and uh, stay away from the boys on the sidewalks and on the beach because those are just gigolos mm-hmm. and um, the transport people like transport 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 stay away from they're just gigolos as well 
always go with the officials, you know, get it from the hotels that you're staying or something like that. And um, be respectful to uh, Balinese people because the true Balinese people are very respectful people, very nice. And the, uh, the people who are coming from surrounding area of Bali, from Java, from different, are the one who you should be careful with. Mm. What is it uh, like for someone who looks like Chinese? It's perfectly fine. It's okay? Yeah. Indonesia right now, it's perfectly fine. Except in um, some part of Indonesia, different part of Indonesia, like in uh, very north part of Indonesia, in Aceh and everything, because they have a Sharia law in Aceh, where the other place where they get the tsunami. You know, what's so funny was when they got hit by tsunami with the uh, thousands of people, cash workers, when the U.S. aid and American Red Cross came, they rejected these people because they are afraid of the spread of Christianity. <laughs> See? All right. Well, you don't get our help then. <laughs> right. Yeah. So, if you stay within um, the major city, you'll be fine. But Jakarta, you still have to be careful. You of know, course. when you're driving, always have your windows up, you know, otherwise, no good. Mm -hmm. The high crime and everything. But I don't really suggest people to go to Jakarta anyway. It's just a big city, messy. I think Surabaya is better, although it's very humid and hot. And uh, I suggest you to go to Bali and Lombok Island and uh, Raja Ampat. Right. Yeah, it's recommended. Well, thanks for the tips. Thanks for the history lesson and everything. It was a fascinating discussion today. Thanks for being on the podcast. You're welcome. Oh, one more thing. I would like to recommend the uh, the listener about book about San Francisco. If you love listening a story about San Francisco or to know the history about San Francisco, there is a book uh, called Cool Gray City of Love by Gary Camilla. I will tell you a story uh, from Farallon Islands to Golden Gate, everything. The history, you know, why the streets and the roads of San Francisco were built on top of a pile of t-shirts. And um, the story why the restaurants are thriving in San Francisco. And why the uh, Coit Tower built certain way and everything. It's all in the book. So I suggest you to read that book. All right. Well, thanks for that tip, too. You're welcome. And thanks again, Rudy, for being on the podcast. Thank you for having me.